There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, where we are continuing on from where we left off at the end of our last episode, we are continuing the story of the Samnite Wars with Dr. Catherine Lomas. Now, in the last episode, we covered the background to this conflict, how conflict erupted between the Romans and the Samnites in the mid-4th century BC. And then we delved into the detail of what we know about this quite enigmatic First Samnite War. Now we're going to be continuing the story. We're going to be talking about the Second Samnite War in a lot of detail, the Battle of the Cordine Forks, for instance, why that moment is so significant in Roman history, or infamous, shall we say. And then we continue into the Third and Final Samnite War, which would ultimately result in Rome gaining control of large swathes of central and southern Italy, very much paving its way to becoming the dominant power on the Italian peninsula. This is a really interesting period in ancient history for me. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Just before Pyrrhus arrives in southern Italy, Rome is really starting to make its mark in Italy itself. You have one last hurrah, as mentioned. You have Pyrrhus arriving afterwards before Rome faces off against the Carthaginians in the Punic Wars. But that is all preceded by one of the greatest rivals in Rome's earlier history, and that is, of course, the Samnites. So I really do hope you enjoy this second part with Dr. Catherine Lomas, an honorary fellow at the University of Durham. And without further ado, to talk all about the Second and Third Samnite Wars, here's Catherine. If we then move on to the Second Samnite War, this feels like a big one. How does it come about, Catherine? Well, the basic problem is that the Treaty of 341 doesn't actually basically solve the underlying problem, which is the Samnites and the Romans both are interested in getting their pools on the same sort of area. And in 328, Rome founds a colony, Fregelli, in the Liris Valley, uh, which creates a permanent Roman presence in the area and, of course, infringes the treaty. And that doesn't just annoy the Samnites. It also annoys Naples, Neapolis. 
And as a result, the Samnites encourage the Neapolitans to start harassing the Roman settlers. And Rome takes umbrage, declares war and besieges Naples, which is actually not a terribly smart thing to do because Naples obviously is a port um, and Rome doesn't have the sort of navy to blockade it. It's very well defended. It has help from the Samnites because Naples is an ethnically mixed Greco-Oscan city by that stage. So the Samnites will send their, their troops in to help their mates. And also Tarentum offers to help, although in the end it doesn't materialise. So what you end up is with Rome bogged down in this stalemate, trying to, to blockade Naples and not really getting very far with it. And in fact, the war doesn't end with the Romans defeating Naples. It ends with an, an internal coup within the city. The pro-Samnite governing faction is chucked out by a, a bunch of people who prefer alliance with Rome, and they make peace voluntarily. And Naples actually does very, very well out of it because the treaty which it negotiates is very famously advantageous. We don't know quite what was so advantageous about it, but it's always referred to as an equitimum freudum, you know, sort of most equal treaty. So effectively, that that there's a sort of small freestanding sort of round one of the war, which ends with Rome actually being able to negotiate a settlement, but having to give very advantageous terms. So it sounds like it starts off well for the Romans, this taking of Naples and all of that. And does this embolden the Romans, shall we say? Do they then decide to try and take the offensive? I mean, what seems to happen now is a sort of bit of a phony war. There's about five years' worth of intermittent Roman campaigns against Samnite territory, but it all seems to be small scale. I mean, Rome does seem to be the main motivator and aggressor in this, as far as we can tell. But it's all fairly small beer. It's sort of raiding rather than sort of huge pitched battles. I think that that's actually something that's worth bearing in mind about ancient warfare. You know, a lot of it isn't about sort of big battles and grand strategy. It's about what we'd regard as sort of raids and guerrilla warfare and border skirmishes. So that basically holds sway until 231, when you know we suddenly get a sort of big upping of the ante with the Cordine Forks. Okay, that name. We've got to talk about the Cordine Forks. So you say it's a 321 BC. This is a disaster. Tell us through it. What is this event? Because everyone seems to... Of all the things Samnite and Samnite Rome, the Cordine Fork is something that many people think of. Yes, indeed. And the paradox about that is we don't actually really know what happened. <laughs> I mean, there are two there are two possibilities. Either what Livy says happened actually happened, which is that the Roman army was lured into a trap by being lured into a defile in the mountains and then blockaded because and, and had to surrender because the only other alternative was annihilation, or that, it, that Rome had actually suffered a defeat and Livy was trying to sort of gloss this by saying that they'd been lured into a wildly devious sunlight trap. But the the reason why it's so iconic for Rome is uh, actually what happens uh, after the surrender, because the Samnites offer a truce on condition that the Romans return to Rome and the Roman colonists from Calais and Fregellae are withdrawn. But they accompany this with a very specific and very humiliating ritual surrender known as passing under the yoke, which means that you, I mean, literally you put up a yoke that you use for driving cattle and, and force people to strip off, divest themselves of all their weapons and sort of crawl under it in their tunics and, you know, then go home in disgrace. It may not have been a yoke, it may have been an arch of spears, but either way, it's the, this is the, the ritual that, that was performed. And it's a ritual humiliation for, for, for an army. So that, that's why it goes down in, you know, the annals of Roman history as being this sort of you know, horrible event. It's not so much that the the army was defeated, but that it was sort of forced into this very disgraceful surrender. And that, that really sort of takes aim at a lot of 
um, you know, aspects of Roman culture and the Roman sense of self-identity as a, as a sort of, you know, all-conquering warrior people. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned those terms right there. They seem pretty harsh terms that the Romans do agree to. It seems quite important to stress those points, doesn't it? I mean, we can talk fact and fiction about this truth versus myth. How do the Romans respond to this humiliation, Catherine? Well, again, you know, we're reliant on Livy for this, and he's obviously got his own agenda. But according to him, the Senate tears up the agreement. It's so, so outraged, it says, no, you know, tear it up off with his head. They send the generals who signed it back to Samnium in disgrace, knowing full well that the Samnites would do horrible things to them. And then it authorises a two-year campaign, which takes place not just in Samnium, but also in northern Apulia, so in the sort of northern end of southeast Italy, if you see what I mean. So they're basically trying to outplank the Samnites by, you know, going around the back and, and attacking them on two fronts. And that ended, it seems to, according to him, ended with a defeat, a defeat after which 7,000 Samnites were rounded up and subjected to the, the ritual of passing under the yoke themselves to kind of wipe out this sort of stain on Roman honour. But the problem is that the details of this are very unclear. And the other weird thing about it is that if you take this as, as face value, it's depicting the Romans as oath breakers, which is, you know, it's an offence against religion. You know, you're defying the gods if you do that sort of thing, because the peace that breaks out after the Cordine Forks is guaranteed by what's called a sponsio, which is a formal oath. So it's not actually putting Roman in, Rome in a particular good light. So, again, it's a case of, you know, is this real? Uh, because a lot of it doesn't really appear in any corroborating sources. Or is it a face-saving invention to try and sort of wipe out the stain of what happened in, in, in 321? I mean, it's not really until 316 where, when we really sort of pick up any sort of substantive, verifiable information about, about what happens that actually looks, looks realistic. But what does seem to have happened is that you know, whatever Livy's detail, Rome does seem to have sort of spent the time building up alliances or, you know, forcing cities to, you know, building up maybe an in inverted commas, you know, it may be a voluntary alliance and diplomatic negotiation, or it may have been, you know, sort of, you know, you have a Roman army on each step, so you make an alliance just, just in case with uh, Lucanians and peoples in northern Apulia. So what it's actually trying to do is, is sort of surround the Samnites by, um, you know, heading around their sort of southern and eastern borders. So basically, there is this period of sort of slightly phony war where we don't really know what's going on. It's possible that Rome did manage some sort of retaliation. On the other hand, it may have been just doing a sort of encircling act to try and corral the Samnites. And it's only really with 316 that we actually pick up any any sort of coherent narrative again. I mean, I'm guessing that it's no surprise that when we do pick up this coherent narrative again at that time, that it's conflict is renewed, is it, Catherine? Yes, it is. Yes. I think one of the things about the Samnite War is that it seems that rather than being a sort of single series of coherent conflicts, it seems to be very episodic. And so that's something that Livia is sort of taking for a lot of sort of quite episodic bits and pieces and trying to weld them into a coherent narrative. But between 316 and 312, we do have a bit more detail. And basically what we have is Roman besieging Seticula, which is a small centre on in Samnium. The Samnites go on the rampage as well. They attack southern Latium and get as far as Terracina on the coast and have quite a lot of success. And interestingly, that seems to be, as far as we can tell, they're only real unprovoked offensive. Most of the time, it seems to be Rome sort of kind of poking them with a stick and then reacting. But this actually does seem to be them moving independently. And of course, that, uh, as it would have to, given that that's in Rome's backyard, provokes a Roman retaliation. It wins back its territory. It 
is really quite punitive towards the, any any communities which had supported the Samnite and some of the allies in, in southern Italy, southern Latium seem to have changed sides. Um, those are sacked and, and heavily suppressed. And it re-establishes Fregelli, and not just Fregelli, but a whole string of other colonies in the Lyris Valley. So it's it's really attempting to sort of stamp its control on that territory at this point. It also founds, it founds a couple of colonies in northern Apulia. So again, it's looking to have a permanent Roman presence rather than just sort of raid and counter-raid. And then in the end, it, they launch a major Roman attack on the very heart of Samnium, and they get as far as Bovianum which is significant because that's very close to Pietro Bandante, uh, which is the main Samnite sanctuary and the, the area where we think is the headquarters of the Samnite League. So it's really going for the Samnite heartland at this stage. But it, it does seem that those four years were a sort of turning up of the heat and, and a much more coherent, consistent campaigns on both sides. Turning up of the heat, and it just gets hotter in the years following, I'm presuming, to the end of the Samnite war itself. Well, again, the problem is that it all gets a bit sporadic going down to 312 to 304. We know that there was a Roman victory in 310, that the Samnites attacked Campania in 307, 306. But again, it all gets a bit sort of bitty and sporadic. It's also, by this stage, not just a Samnite war, because Rome is also fighting ongoing campaigns in Etruria and Umbria. And at this point, Rome has a, a resurgence of conflict with some of the, some of the Etruscan cities, so it's, it's got a war on two fronts as well. The southern Etruria wasn't so much of a problem with Rome at this date, but the northern Etruscan cities of places like Eretium, Modern Arezzo, Perusia, Perusia, Perugia now, Clusium, are, are still very powerful, and they're quite a threat to you know, Rome's sort of interest north of the Tiber. So what, what seems to happen here is, according to Livy, the Etruscans attack a Roman colony which had been founded at Sutrium, in 311. That triggers a series of Roman reprisals in the, the couple of years following. And then in 308, the, the, an alliance of Etruscans and Umbrians put together a joint army to march on Rome, which forces Rome to, to take its forces, pull some of its forces back from Samnium to deal with it. But it, this sort of peters out. Eventually, Romans defeat this force. They force the Umbrians to make an alliance with Rome, and that, that really gives them control of, of that area of, of Italy. And the upshot of that is it's able to control, consolidate, consolidate its control of the Tiber Valley. So it really has consolidated its northern frontier at that point. But then they, they switch back to Samnium and invade Samnium in 306. And there's two years worth of campaigning then, during which Bovianum, Sora and Aquinum, which are key Samnite centres, are sacked. The Samnite army is heavily defeated. And then in 304, the Samnites are forced to sue for peace and the treaty with Rome is reinstated. And again, we don't know an awful lot about the terms, but we do know that that, that draws a line under that particular conflict. Oh, wow. OK, very much the Romans <laughs> emerged the victors at the end of that. It's a long, it's an intermittent war, isn't it, that Second Samnite War? It seems really significant in the story. So thank you for explaining all of that. I mean, one thing which I found really fascinating that you were talking about then was we go back to this idea of colonies, of Roman colonies, not just in the north, but in the south, Fregelli and the like, and also like near these river valleys and everything. And the importance of colonies at this time for Rome, for expanding, extending its influence, how important are they? Because it seems like the Romans are to further their influence. They're setting up all these new little bastions of Rome, outposts of Rome, further and further afield. Yeah, and colonies are interesting for several reasons. They place, as you say, a permanent Roman presence in strategic areas. 
they come in various shapes and sizes and legal statuses. So it's kind of quite difficult to get a sort of overarching narrative of colonization. And sometimes they're really quite small, just a few hundred people, and they're parked in an existing community. You know, typically if Rome conquers a community, it'll it'll kick out the people who oppose Rome, it'll confiscate their property and it'll dish this property out to, to colonists as, as a reward. And a lot of those have the status of Roman citizens, so that the community becomes a community of Roman citizens. And that obviously ties it very closely legally and culturally to Rome. Others are bigger, don't have citizen status. They tend to be given Latin rights, which are package of civil rights, which are a bit more than the rest of the Italians have, but not, not up there with Roman citizenship. And those, some of those can be used to really create you know, Roman forms of urbanism in non-urban areas or, you know, found cities in places where Rome really wants to take a firm grip. The other thing that colonies do is act as a vector for the spread of Roman culture. So they can, you know, promote the spread of Latin language, Roman administrative norms. They also have quite a lot of military importance because, as I said earlier, all Romans, allies and colonies have a duty to supply troops to the Roman army. Colonies which have the status of Roman citizen communities send troops to the legions, the rest just fight in their local contingents. But this is important, essential, because it gives Rome access to a vast pool of manpower. I mean, the Greek historian Polybius says there was a full census of manpower available to Rome in 225 when the Gauls reinvaded. And the answer was somewhere in the the region of 650,000 troops. And that's not counting the Roman legions themselves. So they've got got immense amounts of troops if you aggregate colonies and, and allies. But the colonies, both citizen and Latin, are really the core of that alliance because they have this much closer relationship with with Rome. There's a telling moment in the, in the, at the height of the Hannibalic War when some of the Latin colonies say they're absolutely exhausted, they haven't any more troops to give, and, and the, the Senate sort of panics because they think that this is the core of the alliance crumbling. The problem with colonisation is that there's been a, a vast sea change in recent years in how, in how scholars understand this. Because ancient sources tend to tend to tend to describe colonization as a very structured process. You know, you, the Senate says, you know, where it's going to be found and how many men, who from, where from, who led by. Um, and the assumption is for a long time, based on the Roman essay Aulus Gellius, is that what effectively is happening is you're setting up a sort of clone, sort of mini Romes around the place, pushing Roman culture, particular visions of Roman urbanism, all with the same urban template. But in fact, more recent re- excavation and re- reassessment of, of what's going on it, is uh, that it's a much more ad hoc process than that suggests. Um, that what you get are mainly male colonists being sent to, uh, you know, then they intermarry into the community, added to existing set- settlements, and that things like Roman cults, Roman civic organisation, Roman town planning is something that only gradually evolves later. You know, so you've got things like the colony of Cosa, which was founded in 273 in, in northern Etruria, is often thought to be an absolute archetype of a, of a Roman town. But recent excavation has shown that the, the sort of earliest phases don't really look anything like a Roman town. The, the main cult, you know, doesn't Romanize. It's, it's a local cult. And, you know, the, the Roman cult is a, is a later import. You know, the, the, the forum doesn't look like a forum until until quite a bit later on. So the whole idea of this sort of colonization as a very structured process is now sort of very much under re-evaluation. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. 
So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 called the Forgotten War? This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we remember the war the world forgot. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Continues beyond a re-evaluation, won't it? So all the importance these things to stress is that sometimes, well, opinions are constantly changing as more evidence comes about and new theories emerge. Let's therefore move on onto the third and final Samnite War. It's 298 BC. Take it away. What happens? How does it go? How does it progress? Well, again, it's a sort of third party that draws the conflict uh, because by this stage, the Romans have an, have an alliance with the Lucanians and they request protection because they say the Samnites have attacked them. Now, that's how alliances are supposed to work. You know, that sort of somebody attacks Rome, the allies come to help. You know, some, somebody attacks an ally, Rome goes to protect them. And Rome responds by raiding into Samnium. And in fact, the Fasti, the list of triumphs kept, uh, show that there were triumphs for actions in Samnium and Etruria at this date. So clearly they're having some success at this date. And it basically seems to be sort of quite small beer, but with Rome fairly successful uh, until 296. And what happens then is that for the first time, Rome's enemies try to form a coalition, again, a sort of anti-Roman grand coalition, which involves Etruscans, Umbrian, Umbrian, Samnites, and possibly even Gauls. And between them, they managed to assemble an absolutely vast army based in Umbria, not Samnium. And what that does is force Rome to withdraw from Samnium because unusually it actually consolidates its, both its armies at this date, there were sort of two armies in the field at any given time, one under each consul, and they tended to fight separately. But the threat was obviously so big that they actually withdrew the army from Samnium and sent them both to Umbria to face off against this vast coalition in uh, 296 and 295. So I'm guessing this the writing seems to be on the wall here that we are leading to a battle unlike that seen before on the Italian peninsula in terms of its size. Yeah, the battle uh, of Santinum in 295, which this led to, is something that virtually all the sources say was, you know, an absolutely mega event, even by the standards of ancient warfare. And the trouble really is that assessing the reliability of military statistics in, in ancient sources is, is a real mugs game. I mean, it's, they're, they're not reliable. But it had the reputation of being one of the biggest battles ever fought. And modern scholars have estimated that Rome may have had anything between thirty-six and 40,000 troops at the battle. 
and that the coalition army was even bigger. So it 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 is huge. I mean, the you know, I'd, I'd advise taking it taking specific figures with a pinch of salt, but it's big. <laughs> you know, it's a, I think you can safely say that. The other thing it's notable for is a, a very famous iconic Roman myth. What seems to have happened is that there were a couple of days worth of standoff when the armies sort of met on at Centinum. And then there was a battle in which the Roman consuls adopted two different tactics. Um, one of them, Quintus Fabius, fought quite conservatively. His idea was that, you know, you wear the opposing army down and then pick them off. But the other guy, uh, Publius Decius Mus, was actually quite aggressive and he charges the enemy lines. Nearly brings, uh, initially with some success, but then it was a counterattack and it nearly involves disaster. And his response to this, which is why it's such an iconic thing, is that he commits an act of what the Romans call devotio, which is devoting. It's basically a suicide attack. You know, you, de- you devote your life to the gods in return for victory. So he basically led this sort of, you know, completely kamikaze suicide attack on the enemy lines and sacrificed himself to rescue the position. And that sort of inspired the Romans so much that they then roared on to, to victory. The interesting thing about Decius Mus is that he's not the only Decius to go around doing this sort of thing because his father is said to have done the same thing in 340 as part of the first Samnite War, the battle in Vesuvius. I mean, that, that raises two questions. First is the family tradition, you know, that the Dicci become known for this sort of thing, so they replicate this. Or is it, going back to what I said about the possibility of the first Samnite War being an invention, one of the reasons why the people question that war is, you know, is it plausible that father and son both did this, or is Livy basically taking the later Dicius and, and pushing it forward into the first war and, and simply misunderstanding. But it, it is one of those things that becomes a sort of iconic part of the Roman sort of myth stroke history. I mean, that's so interesting as well, because if I remember correctly, there's a Decius Mus who fights Pyrrhus as well, at Ascalon or whatever later. And I can't remember if it's correct or not. Please correct me if I'm wrong. You're the expert here. But I think that Decius is prevented from doing something similar, according to one of the traditions, by following in the footsteps of his ancestors, as it were. That would be a very Roman thing to do, you know. <laughs> if your ancestors did it, you know, then why, you know, and got got fame and glory by doing it, then why not try it yourself? Yeah, trying to trying to rein him in. That doesn't entirely surprise me. <laughs> it is sort of very Roman, this little mindset. It does definitely seem to be, doesn't it? I mean, okay, so the Bastus Centinum, what happens after? Why is this battle so significant following the Roman victory that ensues from it? Well, mainly because it smashes the coalition. I mean, as I said, the idea of sort of peoples banding together in military coalitions sort of is kind of there at the level of sort of the individual local league, but it's not really a big thing beyond that. This attempt to do it, you know, was on the grand scale and it didn't work. You know, it really dismantled the coalition. And and that means that the Samnites are now isolated again because Rome is able to then you know, separate out the forces and, and start picking people off. There seems to be a fierce fighting throughout Etruria and Umbria, as well as Samnian at this stage. So clearly the component bits of the coalition aren't sort of lying down and going away. And that seems to have continued down until 293, when the, the Samnite army was finally and very decisively defeated at the Battle of Aquilonia. But what Centinum does is really break up the coordinated opposition to Rome and let Rome go back to sort of picking off each area individually. Doesn't mean it was easy because Etruria isn't finally subdued until some years after this, but it does mean that you're back to the sort of fragmented local wars. You're not you don't have the big St. Peace battle. So that really is sort of the end of the, the coordinated opposition to Rome. 
And that means that, unfortunately, the final years of the war are very much less easy to reconstruct, partly because it is all fragmented, and partly because by this stage we're getting down to the point where we don't have the narrative in Livy except in short summaries. Um, he doesn't quite go right down to 290 when the war ends. But as far as we can work out, Rome overruns large areas of Samnium after this. The Samnite resistance is, is really broken because of the very heavy casualties. And in the end, in 290, the Samnites are forced to make peace again. And that, that's, that's basically it for the Samnite Wars. Well, I mean, that's it. It's a 290 BC. It's, it's so interesting to think, though, that it's been... 50 years since the Lyris River and all of that. I know the first Samnite Wars are a little, a little debated now whether it happened. But it's so interesting to see the rise of Rome in this period. I mean, your mind goes back to something like Polybius saying how Rome was able to conquer so much east within 50 years or so. But this seems a similar kind of thing. How much Rome has been able to expand within these 50 years between the, well, in the latter half of the 4th century BC. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that the ancient world, and particularly the Greeks, and you know, obviously Polybius passage you quoted, were absolutely rocked back on their heels by was just understandable by was just how quickly Rome was able to expand. Because, you know, by the end of the Samnite Wars, effectively Rome controls most of central and southern Italy, and it's well on, on the way to controlling the, the bits further north as well. And it's embarks on a process of consolidation, quite a lot more colonies founded at the state. But most, although most cities actually do become allies, time and by treaty, but also it, it starts dismantling any other structures that could provide an alternative power base to Rome. So the Latin League's already gone in 338. The Samnite League is dismantled. Various leagues of states in Etruria and Campania are broken up. So really, it is very much divide and rule. You know, that even though the rule is sort of arm's length, it's you know the, the divide bit is still very much there. So yeah, I mean, at that stage, Rome actually controls vast majority of Italy and, and as you say has got, got, got there really quite quickly Is there anyone still at this stage who could still realistically challenge Rome and its dominance in Italy by this time? Yeah, there is one last man standing and that, that is Tarentum or perhaps more accurately the Greek states of Italy uh, because they were organised in, in, in a league, the so-called Italiote League, which Tarentum by this stage was, was the leader now, Tarentum was very much up there with Rome in terms of size and power. It was very rich. It had huge naval power. I mean, it's got this really spectacular harbour. And of course, the one area in which Rome is notably weak is naval power. It doesn't really have that much. So it has, and it has quite a strong land army as well. But it also has a network of diplomatic connections in the Greek world, which means that increasingly, as it comes under pressure in the later fourth century from people like Lucanians and Bruttians and uh, a sort of people of that sort, it's able to call on allies in the Greek world to come, come and support it. Uh, so it, it has a sort of military hinterland, if you like, which, which enables it to give, gives it extra resources. And really the final, you know, the sort of last stand of non-Roman Italy is the Pyrrhic War of 281 to 275, in which Rome takes on the Greeks and their allies led by Tarentum. And that includes Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus, who is a Tarentine ally. They, they invite him to come and sort of lead their army and bring some of his own and you know, generally sort of participate. And he is absolutely the star general of his era. And he accepts with open arms because he's a relative of Alexander the Great. And what he really fancies is an Alexander-style empire in the, in, in the West to, to rival Alexander in the East. So it's, it's very much reputation building. So basically having 
Rome sort of rather unwisely picks a, a naval battle with Tarentum. Uh, Tarentum absolutely squashes the Roman navy flat, and Rome obviously takes umbrage and declares war. And the Tarentines bring in this sort of huge state-of-the-art Hellenistic army from the east to face them off. And it does give Rome a very a very close run for its money. I mean, the, the proverbial Pyrrhic victory is the battle after which the Romans send they basically the two the two sides had fought, fought each other to, to a standstill, so they, they weren't able to to capitalize on it. But in the end, the, the war itself ended with a narrow Roman victory and an extension of Roman power right to the, the rest of Italy. That is a very intriguing epilogue, which also includes uh, some operations in Samnium. So, you know, in some ways you could actually say, you know, is that a fourth Samnite war? And finally, quick tangent, this personal thing from me, because we're talking about Tarentum before we really wrap up. Tarentum's not given a nice time in the sources that survive. And maybe I'm going a bit too far on this, but could you, would you say that it's probably one of the most maligned, most derided cities of antiquity, just because you read the source material, how they describe Tarentum, and it's pretty dire, the, the sources that survive. Yes, coincidentally, I've just written a research paper about that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's absolutely a hatchet job. And part of the problem there is you're dealing with very much later sources, which are, you know, clearly cherry picking earlier traditions for, you know, things which um, justify what Rome did, which, I mean, Rome was very clearly the aggressor. It broke a treaty, it sailed into the Gulf of Tarentum. It threw its weight around when the Tarentines not unnaturally put out its fleet and, and, and drove them off. But yeah, the, the outbreak of war is sort of every last sort of unflattering stereotype that you could you could mention. And I mean, some Roman authors do have this about Greeks in general. I mean, Livy refers to the Greeks of Italy as what he terms of vanissimum gentem, you know, the, the most vain and insubstantial of people, you know, they, they sort of more words than deed, you know, talk a good game, but they're basically in a bunch of ineffectual windbanks is how he portrays them. But yeah, I mean, there's the, the, the huge set pieces to do with the outbreak of war where the, the Roman envoys turn up at the Dionysia, the festival of Dionysus, and of course everyone's roaring drunk, you know, and, and people grotesquely insult them. And sort of, you know, pee on their togas and laugh at their accents and things like that. And, you know, the Romans do depart in great indignation, saying, You will wash out this stain with your blood. <laughs> sort of, you know, it's a real sort of urban. But also, when Iris arrives, it's said that, they, you know, the, the Tarentines are such a, a bunch of sort of luxurious sort of decadent layabouts that he has to close all the gyms and theatres to get them to do military training. Uh, and the fact that Pyrrhus has turned up is sort of, and they, they have this policy of, of, of employing generals from Greece, is always interpreted as a sign that the Tarentines are militarily weak and decadent and hopeless and useless and can't defend themselves. I mean, the Tarentines actually had a pretty effective army and an even more effective navy. So, you know, if you set the sort of the image against the reality you know, you, you get a very strong sense of the yawning gap. <laughs> I think, yeah, as mentioned, this could be another podcast in itself to wrap up. Don't believe everything you read in the ancient historians that survive, especially regarding Tarentum. <laughs> Catherine, this has been a great chat. Last but certainly not least, your book on this period, and stretching much further than that, the Samnites, Pyrrhic War, Punic War and more, it is called... The Rise of Rome is the most recent one, charting Rome really from sort of yeah, the foundation through to the, the outbreak of the Punic Wars. Well, there you go, The Rise of Rome. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. No problem. Welcome. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Catherine Lomas finishing the story 
of the Samnite Wars, the fall of the Samnites. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's such an extraordinary period of ancient history in the story of the rise of Rome. We're going to have to do Pyrrhus next sometime soon. He is the next man in this story, so stay tuned. I do like that figure a lot. I actually did my dissertation all about Pyrrhus so many years ago now, so we will have to get that man on the podcast in the near future. Don't you worry, I am on it. Now, that's enough from me. As I mentioned, I hope you enjoyed the episode. The last thing, as you all know by now, if you would like more Ancients content in the meantime, well, you know what you can do. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. Every week, I write a bit of a blurb for that newsletter explaining what's been happening in the ancient history hit world that week. And, of course, if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, the whole team at The Ancients, well, we greatly appreciate it as we continue to share these stories from the ancient world and give them the limelights that they really do deserve. That's our mission, and it looks like we're very much getting there. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.